0: Smartwater Alkaline doesn't just taste crisp and pure; it's loaded with everything you need to perform at your best, whether you're running marathons or boardroom meetings. Elevate how you hydrate and pick up a Smartwater Alkaline today. To learn more, visit drinksmartwater.com. Hey, it's Max. Before we get started, a quick word from our friends at Mooby. Mooby is the uh, video streaming service that the discerning viewer. Is looking for it's a curated online cinema streaming exceptional films from around the globe. Every day there's a new movie, just one new movie, so you don't have to do the like scrolling, 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 scrolling. They've uh, picked out a good film for you to watch, whether it's a timeless classic, a thought-provoking documentary, or an acclaimed masterpiece. There are always thirty perfectly curated movies to discover on movie. Plus, you can dive deeper into the films with exclusive interviews, video essays, and critical reviews on Mubi's notebook. Try movie free for 30 days at movie.com. That's mub icom slash longform. Again, movie.com slash longform for a free trial. Thanks to them for sponsoring the show. I have one more announcement before we get started, which is that um, we have t-shirts. Finally, after I don't know how long, longform podcast t-shirts are available. Right now, go to longform.org/shirt. That's longform.org/shirt. They've got uh, the logo up there, the lighthouse, the radio waves. It is all there for you. And uh, we need a bunch of people to go buy them soon. It's like uh, one of these campaigns where there's like a limited window, or the t-shirts don't get made. So go to longform.org/shirt. Thank you for your patience. I think you're gonna like the shirts. Aaron picked them out. They're uh, top quality. Here's the show. Hello. Welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-host, Aaron
1: Lammer, Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Back back at home here in the studio. Here we are, you guys, together once again. I don't hear a single keg being thrown downstairs. <laughs> Thank you, Forno Rosso. <laughs> Max, what about the
0: show this week? Did you interview anyone? I did. In fact, I interviewed two people. Wow. Uh, I think a first for this show, I interviewed a uh, married couple, Jim Fallows and Deb Fallows, who just wrote a book together called Our Towns. And uh, basically what they did is they flew around the country and they went to small cities and towns uh, to figure out what's actually going on in places like Sioux Falls and Burlington and uh, spots all over the country. It's a very ambitious Project. Uh, It was done sort of in conjunction with The Atlantic, where Jim has worked for, uh, in his words, forever. And it was cool. We talked about uh,
1: how you write a book with your spouse. Seems daunting. Did you get into their China years also?
0: Talked about their China years. So they have, for decades now, basically since their kids were out of high school, uh, have spent part of their lives in Washington, D.C., and part of their lives in all over the world, so they'll just move. They moved to China for four years. Uh, they lived in Indonesia for a long time, uh, and then they just did this project flying around America. So they've they really lived this like pretty adventurous life. I found
1: the whole thing like they're pretty like, inspiring. They're like missionaries, but for journalism. Yeah, they're kind of like
0: journalistic missionaries, and uh, and also they are. Um, uh, you know, like they, they can buy senior citizen Metro cards at this point and they're still doing this. <laughs> <laughs> and when you say flew, am I correct in thinking that they flew, like flew their own plane? Yeah. Jim Fowles is a pilot and they have a little propeller plane and they flew around, uh, themselves. Yeah. That was how they did it. So they're like landed little commuter airports and that was part of how they picked the towns as it had to have a little like janky commuter airport.
1: If you've been flying around uh, trying to deliver uh, messages to people, like a 1930s Bush pilot, there's a better way with an email newsletter. MailChimp makes the easiest one to use. You don't even need to pay until your list has a certain number of people on it. And once you get going, they've got all kinds of great features. Analytics, one-page landing page things, all kinds of stuff that's going to be helpful for you. So, uh, thanks to Mailchimp, they help make this show possible.
0: I can't believe you didn't use the
1: landing page transition. Oh, <laughs> all right, I'm just leaving. I I have to resign my position here. <laughs> and now here's Max with Deb and Jim Fallows.
2: Hi, Deb. Hi, Jim. Hello, hey, Max. Max. How are you guys?
3: We're doing great.
2: We are we are peppy, and we're glad to be in Brooklyn.
3: <laughs> in Brooklyn, <laughs> you yeah. You seem peppy.
2: You <laughs> seem <laughs> at full pep. Uh, I, I, I'm not aware of having been on Flatbush Avenue before in my life, so that was exciting for me. Uh, yeah, you've
0: kind of landed in, in what I like to think of as sort of the armpit of Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Well, it has its sort of vibrant city charm to it.
0: Yeah, yeah. it's well, we have like a majestic view of a mobile station. It's uh, it's not the most beautiful part of the borough.
3: And you have a Brooklyn Bridge in your heritage.
2: Yes. There's a whole story, which is too long to tell now, but sort of the story of how my mother's family, which actually had a lot of hardship, could have made it big, would be if one of her mother or grandmother had married the people who built the Brooklyn Bridge. And so then we would have been on easy street. Oh, but yeah. It, we it nearly happened. Nearly happened. And then...
3: Of course, then maybe you wouldn't be here, so yeah, that's none right. of us would be I, yes, here today, so <laughs> except Max. Uh,
0: you guys have... I feel like you're you're like on the circuit. You've been doing all these interviews about
3: your book. We just started doing that, and actually, its pub date is tomorrow. Hmm. But yes, we we have a very interesting tour ahead, some of the big cities, but a lot of what we call fondly the villes, <laughs> Knoxville, Louisville, Greenville, Nashville.
0: Yeah, those are your spots now, they right? Are,
3: they're our towns.
2: And plus Kansas City, plus
3: Spurville. Redlands.
0: Yep. Well, since you went right to our towns, can you give me the uh, the short version of the book?
2: So my my short version is over the last four plus years, we've been going around to the parts of America, usually written about only when there's a tornado or shooting or the Iowa caucuses and seeing what's it like to treat them as sort of independently interesting places. And the heart of our argument is if you didn't know about national politics, you would feel much better about this stage of American life that city by city, lots of places feel as if they're moving forward rather than backwards.
0: What's your version?
3: I'm going to add on to Jim's version which is that we went aiming for towns where people generally don't go unless they're from there not the big city towns where you know the story or have an impression not the what we kind of called fancy towns like
2: like Aspen
3: yeah like Aspen that people have heard of and have a strong impression of but more the towns that we wanted to see for ourselves what was there without a first or media impression
0: what was the genesis? Like, what, why why go do this project?
2: I'll tell you again. You'll see a sort of ongoing yin yang <laughs> balance here of my view and the actual view. Uh, my view is that we've you know, been living in China for a long time, traveling around, and coming back to the U.S. during the time of economic collapse. Wanting to know what it was like, you know, to try to do the small town approach we used in China too. Also, I guess you know the real reason, from my point of view, for a long time. We'd been around the country in a little propeller airplane, and there's a version of the classic American road trip that is simply more interesting that way than it is any other way. More interesting, number one, because it's prettier. You're not just seeing the interstate and the Quickie Mart and the gas station, but you're seeing the whole panorama of the country. So it's interesting that way. Second, it's interesting because you go places you wouldn't otherwise go. You wouldn't go to these places in Wyoming and Nebraska and Iowa and South Dakota because they're not on the interstate, but they have little airports.
0: Right. That was the other, that was like the third metric, right? Was there needed to be a little like a little, airport.
3: Right. But there are four or 5,000 of those. So it's really easier than finding an interstate. <laughs> right. You can just skip over that. And I guess the other reason that we wanted to do this, a, a couple more reasons... One is it it felt like the national narrative of where the country was going was kind of at odds with what we had seen when we'd been flying around to small towns, that the mood seemed pretty dark and dysfunctional, and yet when we'd land in Red Oak, Iowa or um, Rock Springs, Wyoming, we'd think, gee, this, this is an interesting place. Look at all this stuff that's going on here. And it kind of resonated with us since we grew up in small towns and and found them very interesting and compelling. So we thought that we would once again hit the road, which has been our pattern.
0: I want to talk to you about that instinct, but um, it is interesting to me that you guys keep just using the word interesting. Like it's interesting (laughs) to fly instead of drive. And there's something interesting about these towns. And there was a line in the the sort of excerpt in the Atlantic that you wrote that really grabbed me. And I'm just going to read it back and then I was hoping maybe you guys could just explain this idea to me a little bit more because I think it's basically about what is interesting uh this is the line that I wrote down reporting is the process of learning what you didn't know before you showed up and so my question is kind of like what didn't you know about these places and they are places about which I feel like the coasts have lots of preconceived notions and I'm interested in how you approach that reporting process, like how you show up in a small town in Iowa and don't seem like some um, coastal asshole elites. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, for starters, we're not.
2: You know? <laughs> <laughs> so um, the credo of reporting, you know, what you don't know till you show up. That is my basic, you know, that's my this I believe. That's the reason I've stayed in this line of work for low these many decades, just because. There's nothing more fascinating that you can do of just serially satisfying your curiosity about things. What's it like on an aircraft carrier? What's it like in a Chinese coal mine? What's it like in a giant data center in where where do we go? Oregon though? in Oregon. What you know, what what is it like in all these things? And and journalism gives you a structural excuse to go do those. And it seems to me or seem to us that People have, not just in the U.S., but around the world, people have a multidimensional mental picture of life in Brooklyn, let us say, or New York or San Francisco or L.A. Because we've seen movies and you've read novels and everybody's been there. And there is a sense of the goods and the bads and the different neighborhoods and all that. And you really have a flattened 2D or even 1D view of a lot of other places that aren't normally in the media, even worse after the the last election than before because – usually these places were used as props for concept pieces. While we see from the election results, those people out there must be really angry. Let's go out there and ask them how angry they are. And as a side point, if you ask people questions that they're used to hearing in cable news discussions, they'll just give you the cable news answer. So we didn't ask that. We just asked them, what's the story of the town? What's the story of your family? How's this different from your parents' time? What's getting better? What's getting worse? And the perpetual surprise of journalism is, number one, people are usually willing to talk about themselves. And number two, people are interested in their own story. They like telling their own story. They like telling the saga of their family, of the community. And so just going there without a preconception, oh, you pathetic um, lumpen (laughs) proletariats, how angry are you exactly? And are you still fooled by Trump? That's not what we asked them.
3: So at the very beginning of this project, when we were wanting to find interesting places to go see and thought that they would be stories that had a narrative to tell. Jim posted something on his blog at The Atlantic saying that we were about to undertake this project and we were trying to figure out where to go. So where should we go? Tell us about your town. And that was what really kicked this off. Within about a week we had nearly a thousand responses from people saying, Come to my town and here's why. So at that point, we thought, okay, maybe we're onto something here. People, There's a lot going on in these towns, and people want to tell their stories. The beginning of figuring out where we should go was really hit or miss. We were making this up, but we, we followed a lot of those leads and did, you know, what would you do? You'd go on the Internet and kind of see how they're their city website or their town website looked? Was there vitality there or not? Sometimes there was, sometimes there wasn't.
0: How do you judge like a town website for vitality?
3: Well, I'll tell you. Um, I worked oh. in college admissions for a while. And after reading 2,000 applications, you just get a sense of things. You can just tell what's between the lines and mm. if there's something true. And it was the same thing for Did somebody put any effort into making this and is it more than just a bulletin board of the open hours for the Chamber of Commerce (laughs) and when the post office is open or are they celebrating things and are they talking about why we are inviting you to come to such and such an event or why this is a good place to move to and the real estate prices are great or our schools are great, just kind of the background enthusiasm on things. And we'd look up the demographics and the history and so forth and sometimes get in touch with the people who wrote to us. And then we'd just throw a dart at the map and say, weather looks good there. (laughs) How about if we head there? And we landed with a fear that maybe we'd made the wrong decision, but we'd committed for a while. And our first day on the ground, we would generally go see what we called were the usual suspects, the newspaper editor, if there was a paper, the mayor or the city manager, somebody in charge of the schools, somebody connected to business or town development, and we'd say, what's going on here, and who are the interesting people in this town? Who's making this town work that we should go talk to, and what schools should we go see? So by the end of the day, we had a pretty good list of some good starting points, and we Divided it up according to our skills, or lack thereof, <laughs> and Jim would find out about the policy and the business and economics behind the town and the Main Street development, and I'd go to the schools and the library, and we'd both go to the brew pubs together to just hang out and go to the public recreation places to get a feel for it and start our research.
0: Hey, I'm going to put Deb and uh, Jim on hold for a second and tell you about some sponsors that are making today's show possible. First up... Writers, you are listening to this because it's a long-form podcast. You know you need discipline. It takes courage, commitment, and focus to push through creative blocks, extract stories from your head, and get them written down in the real world. If you're looking for structure and organization to help you write a bestseller or make an impact with your story, check out The Self Journal. More than a planner, this powerful productivity and success tool will help you structure your day around your goals and the tasks that are important to you. So no more excuses that you don't have time to write, that you're blocked, whatever. With the Self Journal, you can be intentional with your day, make time for creativity, and free up space for deep focus that gets you in the zone. It's loved by writers. The Self Journal will help you get better at your craft by creating the quality time you need to sharpen your skill. I can almost guarantee that if you're listening to this show, you have at some point struggled with writing. Why not try the self journal. You can find out more at bestself.co slash Again, that's bestself.co.co slash long form. You can get 15% off your self journal. Give yourself a shot. Also sponsoring the show today, Radius from Thermacell. It's the world's first rechargeable zone mosquito repellent, of course. Just turn it on. Mosquitoes gone. With the Radius Repeller, you stop mosquitoes in flight, not on your skin, so you don't have to bother with messy, smelly, oily sprays. The compact Radius Repeller creates a 110-square-foot mosquito protection zone, TM. Not really TM, I just said that. The secret is the uh, use of heat to disperse a highly effective scent-free repellent. Radius is push-button simple. It features a rechargeable battery and a repellent cartridge that offers up to 40 hours of protection. You can use it anywhere, in your backyard, at a campsite, on a picnic, on your, on your vacation. Radius comes with a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Discover for yourself why ThermoCell mosquito repellers are the highest rated zone mosquito repellents. I got to tell you, my wife hates nothing more than mosquitoes, she like uh, tracks them at night. If there's like a mosquito in our room, she just like uh, will not quit until that mosquito is gone. I've got to try Radius from Thermocell. It literally might change my life. I cannot tell you the degree to which mosquitoes bother this person that I live with. Uh, it truly, it's like uh, it is her kryptonite, and I'm gonna try it. Here's how I'll do that. I'm gonna go uh, Thermocell. That's T-H-E-R-M-A-C-E-L-L.com. And I'm going to enter the code long form. And I'm going to get 20% off that radius from Thermacell. Again, that's Thermacell.com and enter the code long form for 20% off. I'm literally going to do that right now before summer really starts. And uh, my partner's entire mental pie chart is taken over by mosquitoes. Okay, let's get back to Deb and Jim. when you would go to the like city manager mayor and then the newspaper editor and all the stakeholders how often did those like stories of the town line up with each other
2: we wanted to keep asking until they did we were talking recently with some social scientist who was complaining about the non-scientific basis of our work and oh you know Duh. I mean, this is not scientific, but it's repertorial. And what you do is you try out hypotheses, which you don't call that. You just try out your your theories and your hunches and your impressions. And you hear it from one person. You ask the next person about that. And they agree on 60%. They differ on something else. And by the time you've talked to 30 or 40 people, you have an idea of what everybody's saying and what nobody is noticing Hmm. and what they're contradicting on. So I think from the craft as opposed to science, of reporting, you get some sense. But I have another point too, which is a, a renegade point. Um, my experience in dealing with, so I've worked for the Atlantic forever and the Atlantic is a now a big time, you know, very long and established East Coast media outlet. And I've observed over the decades, people from the coastal media outlets in I think two modes. There's some of them who sort of carry themselves as the talent. And the person from out of town, the person with a fancy suit, and the person who was sort of waiting for you to ask him or her their impressions on politics. And let that, me get the, that's the gym model. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you, you've anticipated me. And we are probably grossly self deluding, but we think of ourselves, each of us, as from a small town happening to work for a big time coastal operation. But I, I think we felt as if we were in solidarity with people from places like us. So do you agree with that, Ms. Deb, or not?
3: I do. And so Jim and I also come from really different, quote, journalistic or reporting backgrounds, unquote, being that Jim has been a journalist his entire life. And I'm not yet a journalist. (laughs) I'm kind of a normal person, but one from the (laughs) Midwest who likes to listen to people and watch people and Likes to get out and get around. So I did less formal interviewing than you did. And I did a lot of observing, which is (laughs) my strong suit, I Mm -hmm. guess. Going into classrooms and just sitting there for long periods of time, watching how the teachers interact with the kids and watching what the kids say. Or sometimes we went to, people would invite us over for dinner and they'd have a gaggle of their high school kids and we'd. They're real easy to talk to because you just ask a few questions and they start opening up and talking about things. So it, it was kind of a combination of formality and informality. And in the informal parts, I think, was where we also got a strong sense of, have these stories we've been hearing Do they ring true when people are just chatting and just talking rather than giving us a formal answer to a formal question? And that was at one point where I actually felt most like, yeah, I've heard this before.
0: Sorry, what's the part that you've heard before?
3: Whatever they were talking about, like, I love living in Sioux Falls because it's a safe city. My kids can go outside after school and they can go down to the mall rather than hearing the chief of police say, this is a safe city. Oh, right. You're talking about where the stories start to line up. Yes.
0: How was it working together? (laughs) We
2: never disagreed.
3: (laughs) We've been working together our whole life. So I think one of the advantages is that since Jim has been a writer his whole life, he's always worked at home and been around in the house all through the time the kids were growing up in the attic or the basement or wherever he was finding a place to work and and saw the scrum of daily life where the kids were, you know, running around the house or whatever was happening. So that it wasn't like suddenly we started working together. We've been leading our complicated our life in all its complications together for way many more years than you are old. So This was only different in that we were actually finally formally writing a book together.
2: And I think we this was so much a joint effort that we take for granted. We don't notice how unusual it is, actually, to have people at this stage of life from different professional backgrounds actually sharing the labor.
3: But I think we'd also watched each other work in our various ways for so many decades that we knew what was coming we knew what to expect we knew what each of us was better and worse at so we didn't even have to talk about you know you cook i'll do the dishes i in terms of you go talk to these people i'll go talk to these people you fly the plane i'll make the arrangements on. i'll do ground control that
0: what was surprising about our about the our whole adventure together yeah about writing a book with your spouse it's gotta be something you didn't anticipate
2: so the way the book is structured for the minority of the listenership who's not already bought it and read it is in <laughs> successive chapters by Deb and me or, or sections, you know, maybe a thousand words long, two thousand words long, uh, set up by different little icons, visual cues, a little airplane for me, a quill pen for Deb. And I guess a surprise to me is that our very different voices, I think, more different in writing than they are actually you know, listening right right now, that actually I think they have a complementary balance and different parts of what we saw come through in the alternation between the way we're writing about them.
3: For me, it was the mechanics of doing this were a little bit surprising because there's one thing that we knew already, which is that I work in the daytime and Jim works in the <laughs> nighttime. I work better when I know I have plenty of time to complete my task and Jim works best when he's under a ridiculous deadline. So while we knew those things about each other, I think actually doing something together that had to conform to both of our styles was, was it uncomfortable?
2: We w- went back to, um, you know, my hometown of Redlands, California, and had, took six months off in the Atlantic and just had this little house where we had a whiteboard yeah. mapping out where we, we had to get each week and each day. And, you know, the secret of writing a book, even a fairly long one like this, is if you do a certain number of words per day, you get done. <laughs> and so we, we did that pretty much.
3: We did that pretty much. Yeah, it was <laughs> actually surprising. Maybe that's what was surprising. We actually did what we said we were going to yeah. do. And that whiteboard, you I know, mean, was... You
0: guys strike yeah. me as people who are uh, habitually doing what you say you're going to do, even if it sounds kind of wild.
2: This you have seen to the heart of one of our strategies in life, which is to lock ah. ourselves into doing something by telling people we're going to do it. That's right. That, that, that's how we went to China, you know, 12 years ago. A year or so in advance, we started telling people... We're going to move to China. After a while, I said, "Well, what are you doing here?" You know, a Thought we you were going to move to, do, to China. Yeah, you know, <laughs> why are you still in D.C.? And so, so we've done that a number of times, and we said we're going to, you know, write this book about. So it's yes, there is that publicly locking yourself into doing something.
3: Yeah. And since you had written far many more books than I had, I I would say I I don't think I've ever said this to you before, but I did follow your lead in how to work on this how what to worry about and what not to worry about, and how to just trust that, oh, this will all come together.
0: Can we spend like one more second with that? How do you, now that you've learned, how do you do that?
3: I think the key is the trust that means you're willing to go back and reorganize something or redo something or reconfigure that would, in my opinion, radically re- shift the package of what you're doing, which makes me uncomfortable because I like to have that structure from the get-go and kind of stick to it. So that was hard, but you were right.
2: (laughs) (laughs) This is an unusual moment you're hearing. Here are two tips I have internalized about book writing from friends over the decades. One is there's a wonderful novelist named Charles McCary, he wrote this fabulous book the tears of autumn and many other books and he was a, he had been a spy in his youth and a presidential speech writer just a wonderful person charles mccarry and one of the things he said about book writing is that each day or each night stop you know if you figured out step 10 stop when you've written step 9 so that it's easy to start the next day. You mm. can you can start the next day with something you've already figured out so you have that kind of momentum. You're already going downhill. And I think that's really important because otherwise you can spend the first hour of the next day just being uh, stalled. The other is, I was friends with the famous novelist Michael Crichton. who wrote a zillion novels, and there was one famous week where he had the number one movie, the number one TV show, and the number one best-selling book all at the same time. He was a real polymath, and he he died younger than than I am now of sudden cancer. But he said that when he was writing a book, he tried to avoid all other distractions or choices in his life. So he had the same thing to eat at every meal, and he (laughs) wore exactly the same clothes. And just, you know, he wrote books quickly, so he'd do this for like two months. We couldn't do this for six months, but trying to say, there's lots of things I'm not going to think about so I can concentrate on things I do need to think about.
3: Which leads me to one of the reasons that Jim loves being a pilot and loves flying a plane, because in this journalistic life where he is naturally involved in a lot of commentary, breaking news, distracting, especially Washington life. When we get in that plane, and Jim is responsible for being the pilot and flying it, it's complete tunnel vision Mm. onto those controls, onto the weather, onto the actualities of flying the airplane. And while it takes a lot of concentration, I can also see the relaxation of you're just not allowed to let anything else into your mind. But for you, I see that as also really a relaxing thing.
2: So there are people who might take up yoga, or Zen meditation, I say, why not spend years getting a pilot's license get an airplane and fly around the country? But no, I I think as Deb says, I find it really absorbing and beautiful and exhilarating. And it does, I can't worry about anything else.
0: Was your process for getting your pilot's license the same as going to China? Did you just tell people for years, I want to be a pilot, I'm going to get my pilot's license, and then you did it?
2: Yes. And one of the people I told was Deb, who was sort of putting the kibosh on it for a long time. Well,
3: (laughs) We had a a deal. It was called Not Until the Kids Had Grown. (laughs) (laughs) And then when our youngest was actually the day his college letter came in from where he wanted to go, Jim said, oh, there's this airport (laughs) in Gaithersburg. (laughs) So and fine, deal accomplished. And he went off to learn to be a pilot. Can I ask you a
0: question? uh, This is not really uh, very journalistic, although maybe it is. Like, that instinct, like, that feels a little bit like a little kid to me. Like, uh, it was Christmas, so you could open your present, your present was becoming a pilot, and you'd been waiting 20-something <laughs> years to do it. Um, like, it seems like both of you guys have that spirit, and I wonder how, uh, how it's continued.
2: For people of mature years? For people of mature years. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, yeah. like, you guys just embarked
0: yeah. on this crazy project. You flew around the country, went to all these small yeah. towns... The project itself is ambitious and optimistic. Moving to China <laughs> is ambitious and optimistic. Where, like, where do you guys find the ambition and the energy and the optimism for those projects?
2: To wax serious for a moment, um, my dad, who died ten years ago or so, was different from me in many, many ways. But he was a, he ended up as a very, very accomplished small town doctor. He grew up in a non-college family. The Navy sent him to medical school. He was a Navy doctor, and they moved out. He got a a glimpse of California after his uh, Pennsylvania upbringing. He thought, this is where I want to be. So he he moved us there, which is where we grew up. And he was, the point I'm making is he was a perpetual little boy in the sense of his enthusiasm for everything, that he more successfully in George W. Bush learned to be a painter after he retired from medical practice. And he rode as Palomino horse in the Rose Bowl parade every year and became uh, the head of the mounted police in our little town riding on horses. And I, I think that, that he imbued on our family the sense of just permanent excitement. So that that's one point. I, I don't think I'm like my dad that much, but I think I'm more like my mom. But I that sort of perpetual enthusiasm is something that I recognize from him. Also, this line of work of being a reporter I've always thought is by far... The most fortunate thing I, I could ever do the only thing i could ever really sensibly do but also is just such a privilege in being able to keep your life should be a sequence of adventures with it, of finding out about things and 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 indulging the twin instincts to find out and to tell those are our two uh, basic impulses but it's been so for family heritage and occupational structure and also because nobody likes a grumpy old man <laughs> I think those are the reasons I tried not to be a grumpy old man.
3: And I guess I have a version of that, partly the same. So I grew up in the Midwest, Minnesota, Chicago, northern Ohio, and there are great places to grow up. There's a real grounding sense from growing up there. But there's also real, a real sense that you need to get out and see the world because it's it's so flat and it's so stable in that part of the country that you want to leave. How many people do you know from Ohio? I bet lots. Mm-hmm. When w- No matter where I go, somebody's there are always these huge clots of people from Ohio, I think because they want to get out of Ohio. I love Ohio, but it's the Midwest is a great place to grow up and a great place to leave from. The other is from my dad as well, who the mantra from him in our household was, go ahead and try it. It will be a good experience. So... My sister and I were encouraged to do a lot of things that back in the day, you know, now it's different, but back in the day, do boy things, like we had to mow the lawn. I mean, I hated that. We had to learn how to fix car engines. I hated that. But there was always an encouragement to try things, even if they were uncomfortable or even if you might fail, like how bad could it be? It'll be a good experience. And I think that that voice from him in my head has always been something that has said, go out and try it, or go out and do it.
2: And there was a moment, I think, in our early married life where a decision or wish by you had a Mm. complete lasting fork in the road uh, impression. So we got married in 1971, right after Deborah graduated from college. After I was in graduate school for a year, we came back to the U.S. in 1972. I worked for the Washington Monthly, which was then getting uh, started up as you know a, a this political magazine. I, for two years, I was right at age 22, was right in the center of a lot of political journalism then. And the natural thing for somebody like me would have been to stay in D.C. Yeah. and just say, OK, what's the next step? With a big newspaper, with, and I was starting to write for national magazines and all that, but... That was the time instead we moved to Austin, Texas. And the reason was?
3: I was really unhappy in Washington, D.C. and didn't want to stay there. And I wanted to go back to what I really loved, which was what I studied as an undergraduate linguistics and go oh. ahead and try that in graduate school. So much to Jim's credit, he came with me and left a career that was just starting for we didn't know what it was going to be for him professionally so that so that i could be happy too <laughs> and so that i could start to find my way too and it it felt like a big deal at the time I, I mean i think it was a big deal it was in the you're going where you're doing what we all know austin's a great place but at the time we didn't know and, it
2: and i worked for a young uh then state yeah. senator named lloyd doggett we became you know sort of quasi texan but I think the point is that in the time since then, we've lived sort of half the time in D.C. and half half other places, and that was the beginning of thinking we should have structural permanent revolution in our life.
3: Yeah. There's always been a push-pull factor. There's been a push out of, I'm not going to say the swamp, because I actually have (laughs) come to like D.C. quite a lot after all these years, but a push factor out of where we lived and a pull factor to all these other amazing places that we might go to.
0: Do you guys remember what those conversations were like? about moving to Austin
2: I remember that you were Deb was working then as a legal secretary and had what we could refer to as bad attitude as a worker
3: (laughs) it was like fired (laughs) and and so the
2: question was for linguistics graduate school do we go back to Cambridge where we'd gone to college we're undergraduate Harvard do you go back to MIT for graduate school or to Stanford or yeah. to Texas, and for various reasons, Texas seemed like the most attractive program and a great adventure. And so we thought, "What the hell?"
3: We were absolutely right. I mean, I guess
0: maybe that that was like a, a sort of passive
3: way of asking. Like,
0: were you not in those conversations? Like, <laughs> I'm doing some shit here. <laughs> I'm on a
2: path. Like, how'd you guys navigate? I think one of my mentors, whom I won't name on the chance that he might hear this at some point or hear about it, was. Telling me I was making this gigantic life mistake.
3: I didn't ever hear that. Oh yeah,
2: I mean you know who I'm talking about. Yeah, I do. And that if just I name names enough, <laughs> <laughs> you know, if I wanted to be the editor of the Washington Post or if I wanted to be the you know DC correspondent for this or that publication, this was just the wrong time to step off the carousel. And in fact, it was, of course, in purely crass professional terms. It was the best thing I could possibly have done just to be sort of introduced to the rest of the world. It's just not of the standard career path. And to have a a different kind of career path of just learning about a whole range of things as opposed to just the world of D.C. But were you aware of that then? Or did it feel like I'm going to do the right thing even if it's not the
0: right thing professionally? Uh, How did it feel, Jim? I I
2: pouted a little bit. I Did think. Because I remember yeah. that improbably, the, I had two freelance assignments when we head down to Austin. One was my first ever assignment for The Atlantic, where I was going to do a profile of Lloyd Benson, then preparing a run for the presidency. So that was one thing to do. The other was weirdly a commission from Playboy magazine to do a profile of Warren Berger, the Justice of <laughs> the Supreme Court. <laughs> So, I'm I'm just reporting here. I'm just reporting. So for a while I was sort of commuting back and forth from Austin and thinking why I have, have I been ripped away from the glamorous life of Warren Burger profiles. So but I did I did the Lloyd Ben the, the Warren Burger profile I got killed, although they paid me. The Lloyd Benson profile worked and I did then another piece for the Atlantic from the right. world's largest slaughterhouse in Amarillo about sort of the beginnings of the animal rights movement then
3: and it was also that jimmy carter i think saw those pieces in the atlantic and that was how you
2: first and the washington monthly also yeah Yeah, joined his
3: campaign there's one other thing though this was a really long time ago and i think people's (laughs) ideas young people's ideas of their careers and career paths have changed over the times when I watch our kids who are a bit older than you and your age, kids and kids, fully-fledged adults and somewhat younger, plan their lives and careers, I see a lot more planning and explicit vocalized compromise-making, trajectory organization of how my career will go going on than it was in our era which it all
0: sounds so pejorative when you say it. <laughs>
3: <laughs> no I'm saying we were really yeah. reckless yeah um, Sounds awesome.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but it was sort of a... So our parents, who are of the World War II generation, got married very young. You know, my mom was 20 when I was born, and and your parents were young, yeah. too. And so they were doing a bunch of just roll-the-dice things. And I think we were sort of in the roll-the-dice mode, too. I was not sure I wanted to be in this journalism business at all anyway. It was just you know, giving it a try before doing something more serious. And so it was all just trial and error with a number of And
3: errors. it was also, really, it was post, this is going to sound so old, but it's true, it was post-Vietnam era when we were just glad to be alive. And, you know, people had other serious, more serious problems than we do of trying to figure out what your career was going to be and if you were taking a slight deviation in your path. So I do think a lot of it was the times and not, and being able to risk it more and having that be a normal thing.
0: It's almost like you guys were like, you were playing with like house money.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
2: yes. Yeah, it, it, it's true. And there was a certain, I, I think we we lacked a tragic imagination of how things could go yeah, wrong. Yeah,
3: maybe so. Yeah.
2: We were just kids.
0: When, uh, when Carter came calling, how did you guys make that choice?
2: So I think we... Uh, we signed on the day before we discovered you were pregnant with, with <laughs> what would become our first son. So that was sort yeah, of, uh, that was part in. of rolling the dice. Uh, but this was more intentional, believe it or not, which is one of my early mentors, perhaps referred to earlier in this conversation, a man named Charles Peters, who was the editor of the Washington Monthly, had said that if you want to be right about politics as a journalist, some time in your life you should try to work in it one time. And Charlie had worked for the John F. Kennedy campaign in West Virginia and then had been a senior figure in the Peace Corps. And his argument was, if you do it one time, you're just going to know things you can't know otherwise and do it once. So you're not commuting back and forth. So when out of the blue, some friends in the Carter campaign in the spring of 76 said, we're looking for more talent, I thought we thought, well, wh- why not? What do we have to lose, essentially? Most candidates at that stage are going to lose. So it'd probably be a half-year half, half year adventure, and I'd learned things I wouldn't know otherwise. And so that was sort of, it was, was rolling the dice again. And then you ended up in the White House. Um, yes, through improbable circumstances. On the campaign as the kid junior speechwriter you know, on the plane for six months, then the senior speechwriter then, Patrick Anderson, a very good writer and a, a good friend, got crosswise of Jody Powell. And so... I moved up the food chain and became the head speechwriter for two years until I then got crosswise of Carter and Rick Hertzberg of the New Yorker moved up the food chain after me.
0: Wait, how, first of all, just using the phrase crosswise seems to me to be like a phrase that someone who never gets crosswise with anyone would use. But wait, what was your falling out with Jimmy Carter about?
2: Jimmy Carter, number one, it has been the best former president in American history. Number two accomplished a lot more as president than most people give him credit for, from deregulating the craft beer industry <laughs> to and, and creating what is all around us to the Camp David Agreement. And number three would, would have been a very good sort of judge or dictator because he always wanted to do the the right thing but was less sort of intent on getting it done. On the other hand, he was not that good of a speaker, I contend, uh, <laughs> as his speechwriter. And so there was sort of a structural crisis that was involved in being his speechwriter. So, and and just to go an inch deeper, he was quite a good extemporaneous speaker to crowds of 200 people, which is how he became president. You know, he went around the country and people thought, well, this guy has the magic. And after Watergate, he was not good at like an inaugural address or a speech to Congress or these other things that you have to do as president. And so it just was something I was glad to have done, but it's not really cut out to do. Mm -hmm. And so- We uh, parted ways, and I wrote an analysis in The Atlantic saying there's problems coming for Carter, and he took that the wrong way, understandably. Can I ask two more
0: questions about this, and then we'll go back to the book? I'm just curious about it. One is,
2: so if the goal was always just
0: to work in it once and learn what you can, what'd you learn? And how did it inform your journalism?
2: So here are a couple of specific things that I always refer to because they're so vivid. One is, you underestimate how tired people in the national at the white house are it just being tired is a much bigger explanatory factor than you would think that that during the course of, and it's a huge advantage for an incumbent president against a challenger cuz the incumbent president can usually sleep in his own place each night and the challenger is on the road in these motels and just is I was you know twenty six twenty seven I was doing this, and I felt like I was ninety eight years old <laughs> just because I was you know having to get up at three thirty a m and and so the the role of fatigue, uh, another thing which really struck me is how ninety five percent of of the time blunder and incompetence is the explanation for something that from the outside you want to put things together in some kind of pattern. Oh, you know, the Secretary of State must have said this because of some hint from the president, and usually it's just they never returned a phone call or they didn't know what they were doing or they were jealous. So those practical matters uh, impress me. I guess more generally, I have a residual respect for people who will get into politics because it is really, really hard. And so people I mentioned earlier, Lloyd Doggett, who was a mid-20s-year-old state senator when I worked for him in Texas, is now a man of mature years in the U.S. Congress. I really respect people who will just keep on doing it and are willing to put up. Can I say one more thing? Most of us in our life, if there's one person who is really mad at us, it drives us crazy. As a politician, you have to accept that millions of people will hate you and you can still be considered a success. And that is a different kind of cast of mind. The end.
0: (laughs) Are you guys good at uh, being okay with it when people are mad at you?
3: I don't like having people mad at me.
2: This is so a so discussion. We've, we've yeah, had this we've, discussion. We Shall we rehearse it? Sure. Deb, people are going to attack us. They're not going to like things about this book. Even if it does really well, people are going to attack us. But why
3: would, why would they do that? <laughs>
2: <laughs> because, because we're saying things that are controversial. People are not always fair in their judgments. We know what we meant. People aren't always going to agree with that. People are going to say, oh, you're coming there in your airplane. It all looks fine to you, Mr. Jet Setter and Miss Jet Setter, with your privilege. And that is going to happen.
3: I know. It's much harder for me. Don't they understand, you know, (laughs) where we're coming from and why we're doing this?
2: They could just
0: hear us talk for an hour. They'd like us. (laughs) If there's only some way.
3: No, it's, it's a problem for me. It's not a problem for you. You've been in journalism your whole life and and people find it easy to criticize. They don't always find it easy to compliment. I've avoided confrontation my whole life as much as possible. So this is not a part of it that comes naturally to me. I'm just trying to bear up.
2: <laughs> How's it going?
3: so far so good <laughs> <laughs>
0: but
2: nobody has attacked us yet as of the moment you we're all having this conversation we have we've had gotten some attacks yeah. I've, I've but there hasn't been a really big one which i'm sure there will be
3: and there's one part i mean i totally believe in this book in this message and just want to say well, you try it you go out there and see mm-hmm. all these places and then tell us what you think so i feel we've been as thorough and careful about Reporting honestly and faithfully what we've seen and heard as we could possibly be. So that's the best we can do.
0: I feel like um, I can imagine what some people listening to this are thinking. I can imagine their attack, which is not necessarily on the message of the book, but is more on the privilege aspect of it, which is like so many people would like to fly around the country in their own plane doing this reporting, doing these projects. So many people would like to move to China
2: for how many years? Total of about four in different, a little less than four in two installments.
0: And just explore the place. And I can imagine that some people are listening, don't have a tax formulated, are just jealous (laughs) and pissed. (laughs) And maybe as a way of of paying them back, you could offer some advice on how you figured out how to scam things to the point (laughs) that people will pay you to do this?
2: We feel enormously fortunate in life. We're fortunate, we are beyond fortunate in health Mm -hmm. and in our family and not all breaks have gone our way but a number of them have and so we are, I think we try to be aware every second of how, we can't be fully aware of our good luck but we try to be also I spend every second of my life working. You know, there's, <laughs> <That's> <laughs> there's, true. there's no time I'm not on the clock, Yeah. except when I'm flying the plane. And I, I think that, that the idea of people think like we would be sent to China on a big expense account. Mm. You know, we showed up, we stayed for the first two weeks in Shanghai <laughs> in a hotel where all the other occupants, all of them, were Russian or Ukrainian merchant seamen. You know, that was the merchant seamen's hotel in Shanghai. Uh, we never stayed in anything other than like a Motel Six or whatever on this flying around. Yeah, the last number and of years.
3: and also this is not like renting an exec jet and going <laughs> on. This is a little, this is a little propeller plane. That if it's hot outside, you're hot. If it's cold outside, you're freezing. There's there's no bathroom. <laughs> there's there's no food. You know, you get to the FBO and you pray for a vending machine with those peanut butter cheese crackers <laughs> for breakfast and lunch. You land someplace, and there there may well not be a rental car or an Uber or a taxi, so you have to kind of wait till some guy comes down the road and a pickup and will take you into town, and hope that there's room at the inn, which is you know, Red Roof or Motel Six or No Name Hotel. So that is not to complain. That is to set the record straight that we're on the ground schlepping a lot. I mean, that's what we do.
2: Yes, and that is true. And also, it's true that no one will hear anything involving a personal airplane and not think, ah! (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) that's true. Well, I mean, but I think it's actually pretty important. If
0: part of the answer to that question is not, listen, I reached a point in my career where I've got tenure at one of America's foremost magazines and they'll let me do whatever I want and this is what I want to do. Part of the answer is that is true. And also, I do it at almost no
2: expense to them and at some large amount of physical discomfort to me and my family. And it it is, again, I'm careful in putting this out. In the times, in the four years we lived in Japan and Malaysia and the almost four years we lived in China, what the Atlantic did for us was to pay my salary. And that Mm -hmm. was it. I mean, everything else, we rented out our house and and we, it was not like they were financing trips back and forth. So we They continued to pay my salary, which I'm very grateful for, but the rest is something we all just figured out how to do. We
3: figured it out. But also, if we were to do this all over again, I would honestly choose it the same way, rather than being assigned to I was really envious of the people who were in the countries who had been assigned by their bureau from the Times or whatever, that they had Houses found for them, the schools, tuition paid, and, and you a driver? the driver. I
0: mean, the other journalists that you you guys have yeah, known uh, across the world over the years, or, or people there
2: on like law firms, or law firms, or, or things.
3: Yeah, not all of them. I mean, there were versions of this story across the board, but one thing that I think we came to entirely value out of the hoofing around that we did was what we saw by doing that, I I tried to calculate how many times we'd been on the Beijing and Shanghai subway,
2: Hmm. rather
3: than with a driver or in a taxi. And I just lost count. I mean, it was-
2: We actually worked out it was more than, it was like 1,500 trips on the Beijing subway because we knew from how many cards we had re-upped, as opposed to our friends who had never been on the Beijing subway after living there at the same time.
3: And it would have been great in a way to not have to be (laughs) on the Beijing subway so many times, but I'm telling you, you learn a lot by being on the Beijing subway, just watching people go in and out, and listening to them talk, and ending up in the wrong place, or seeing what happens when it breaks down, or when your pocket gets yeah, picked. getting robbed, yeah, yeah, or things like that. So all of those little moments accumulated into a very genuine and memorable <laughs> experience.
0: <laughs> Unfortunate.
3: Unfortunate, yeah.
0: When uh, when you guys got here before we turned on the microphones, I was complaining to both of you about how like tired I am, and <laughs> how like I've got so much to do, and uh, I'm, I'm exhausted, and um, I'm a little embarrassed now having heard you guys talk about this to have been complaining about my like 20 minute commute on the subway <laughs> to uh, to my office. But we talked about this a little bit, but I'm just going to ask it again because I'm personally interested. How exactly? If you could just fill in this blank for me. Like, how exactly have you guys sustain the energy to live this way?
2: How do you do that? We, we are really, we get a lot of exercise. I mean, we make a point of always getting exercise, right?
3: That's true. I think that's the number one important thing in our day is to be sure we get some exercise. And it's you run and use the rowing machine and I do yoga and I swim and ride my bike and it's as much mental as it is physical. It's just that break to do the reset and kind of start over again. Um, and we are very fortunate, knock on wood so far, to not have any major health issues, mm-hmm. which becomes the big deal yeah. as you get older. It,
2: and, I mean, we have, uh, I guess also, the my, I have the model of both, both of our fathers never thought of themselves as old. They yeah. thought of themselves as sort of bushy-tailed, and I think that imprint is in... Both of our minds.
3: One thing I've been thinking about more is at this age and having these opportunities and feeling good, you have some responsibility to this privilege of the life that you get to have by keeping going, by going out to do more things and trying things that are hard and challenging yourself. Um, So I think there is some kind of nagging thing in my mind. Maybe it's because I grew up as a Catholic or something that makes me think you have to do this too.
2: So what are you going to do next? I think in a way we would not have anticipated two or three years ago, we really have religion on this American revival theme that if, if we start with the observation that there are some problems in national politics right now, one thing that I professionally could do would be to dig right in the middle of that in the D.C. Um, angle and become another voice in the struggle in D.C. And I would flatter myself that I could have some role in that struggle, be one more voice in that struggle. The other thing is that, is that I think there there's, almost, there's a real shortage of people in our f- line of work paying attention to these countervailing positive things that are happening around the country that we believe are real. And that we believe need more attention and with more attention could have more potential success. So I think our next stage is try to figure out in what practical ways we can try to pull some of these strings together and tell more of the stories and draw more attention and go to more of these places too. And
3: connect people with each other who are in like-minded pursuits. You know, the startups in Greenville with the startups in Fresno and the ones in Montana or the rural artists in Iowa to those in Arizona, just to give voice to some of these messages of optimism and how to do it that we've heard from people so they can feel like they're part of a movement and not alone in the efforts that Mm -hmm. they're doing. I think we'd really like to do that.
2: And give one very practical illustration. You know, the meta theme here is there's lots of experimentation going on around the country to find what's going to be the right answer, the right combination of answers. And just today we were talking to somebody who said we were observing that the two great crises we see at the local level are number one opioids and number two, local journalism and the economic pressures on it. And this guy we were talking with is saying, Well, Really, the answer would be to convince today's rich people that they need to set up endowments for local journalism. You know, that Jeff Bezos for The Washington Post, that's great, but there need to be 10 more people doing that for 200 more papers and having some version of the Peace Corps, some version of the International Executive Service Corps or other practical ways. So finding innovative ways actually to address these real problems Mm -hmm. is interesting to me.
0: It's a theme throughout the book that... um, this breakdown in the fabric of these small towns and counties losing local journalism. And it feels like actually the book is like so like optimistic and kind of like dissonantly optimistic. Yeah. But since you have been to these places and most people listening have not, help me understand exactly what so, you guys saw so on that front.
2: Local journalism is under, and the default condition would be for it to go down and down and down. For example, in my hometown of Redlands, California, when I was a kid, and for a long time before that, there was a family-owned newspaper that really was the center of the town, the Redlands Daily Facts. So the Daily Facts is still there, but it's part of this news chain that is so much in the news from the Denver and you know the Alden Group or what, oh, yeah. whatever it is. And so they are under tremendous pressure in lots of places we've been. In our chapter on Allentown, we talk about a lot of the great uh, reporting from uh, reporters for the Allentown Morning Call. Everybody we cite in that book from three years ago is now doing something else other than working in, on the morning call. So there are, that is the great pressure. And also there are people who found ways to turn it around, um, both in Burlington, Vermont with the, with seven days, which is the one time alt weekly. There It's become sort of the state's newspaper there. They are robust in their print edition in Erie. The Erie weekly reader is sort of taking over the slack that the, uh, the normal, morning newspaper is not doing. And there it's an experimentation. There are some cases of success. There's a larger problem like that of newspapers in general. And our goal, our purpose here is to say, look, it's still a time of possible inflection. This is where money, attention, talent, innovative ways like we were hearing this morning, of some of these senior editors who've been laid off from newspapers and Time Inc. Find some program where Peace Corps-like, they can go out to these places in the Dakotas or in Texas and work on... To, and, to, and train yeah, and the train. next generation
3: yeah. of journalists who would then go out there and do that. Mm. So this is a real kind of stand-up moment mm. for philanthropists. Yeah. and
2: The future is being yeah. decided even now. It's an optimistic idea. <laughs>
3: <laughs> but it could actually work. <laughs> yeah.
2: And, and real So two sort of augustness of age points. One is we've lived through a lot of bad times for America. And I guess to stop being coy by this, we're, we're 68 years old. That, yeah. That's how long we've, we, we've been around. And so we grew up in the shadow of the Cold War and being blown up by the H-bomb. And there was... 1960s were no picnic. 1970s were terrible. In the 80s, there were all of the Japanese challenge. There's been a lot of trouble in the U.S. And so uh, the U.S. has faced a lot of these dire trends, and we've seen some of them prevail, but also some of them being resisted and turned around. And it depends on not giving in, saying it actually it's a struggle, and it's worth engaging in the struggle. Do
0: you have anything to add, Dan?
2: Um, other than, oh, shut up. <laughs> oh, shut up. That's <laughs> well, what she was thinking.
3: I, actually, maybe just one other point. One of the things I enjo- I think we've enjoyed most about this whole adventure is the opportunity to stay in touch with people who are a whole lot younger than we are, to see what we always just refer to as the kids becoming full-fledged adults and taking on new responsibilities and roles and acting on their dreams I think I'll run for Congress. I'm going to try to do this startup here in Duluth because I want to live in Duluth. We want to create a different kind of school, so I'm going to get together with a couple of my neighbors and make a charter school. You know, it's a different way of operating from when we grew up, and it's really inspiring and makes me believe in the spirit that this country started with and is still going on with it's a it's a new iteration of things that are happening and rather than screaming about kids get off my lawn yeah. i i want them all to come onto my lawn you know <laughs> and have a picnic there
2: as long as they don't bring a leaf blower
3: right with <laughs> no leaf blowers right bring the beer and a will grill or something
2: and one more feel self business I mean my dad special. my mom was an emotionally complicated person but my dad always say would say that you you can't control everything in your life but you can sort of decide on the degree of happiness of your response you know things are going to happen to you but there are some of the responses within your control I think we've tried to absorb that sound right <laughs> wait till the next bad review <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah ask me next week <laughs>
0: Deb, Jim, thank you guys. Next, thank you thank so you much. you, Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor is Janelle Pfeiffer. And uh, this week we are saying goodbye to our intern, Angela Velez. Angela has been amazing. If you are listening to this and uh, are in the position to give... Uh, Aspiring Radio Producers A Gig Reach out to me Max at Longform.org You need to get in touch With Angela Velez I also want to uh, welcome Our new intern Tyler McCloskey Tyler Welcome to the Longform Podcast It's a pleasure to have you Our show is brought to you As it is Every week By the fine people At MailChimp Thanks to them For their support And uh, thanks to Jim And Deb Fallows For coming in And Teaching me Once again (laughs) how to try to be an optimistic person in the world. We'll see you next week. Psych. Actually, I want to tell you one more time about our good friends at Mubi. Mubi is a curated streaming service. There's only 30 movies on there at once, so you don't have to do that thing where you're clicking around uh, for 45 minutes to actually pick what you want to watch. Everything on Mubi is good. They've got actual humans that pick actual good movies. There's classics, docs, masterpieces new indie stuff uh there's 30 movies at a time a new movie every day and uh it really it's a great thing you don't have to do all the work of picking out what you want uh they're just going to put something great in front of you try movie free for 30 days at mubi.com slash long that's movie.com slash long for your extended free trial go check it out okay now actually we'll see you next week